And this morning we will be um, finishing or finishing off the vision of John in Revelation chapter 5. So Revelation is one of the easiest books to find in the Bible. It's all the way at the end. If you guys are new or visiting with us this morning, so just open up to the end of your Bible. It's the last book there, Revelation chapter 5. And we're going to dive right in there at Revelation chapter 5. So do you guys all follow along with me? I'll read it. I'll let you guys turn your pages. I still hear them turning. Revelation chapter 5. It says this, And then... I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take up the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Would you guys pray with me? Father, as we come before you in awe, Lord, we are in awe of what you have done. For you've redeemed a people for yourself. You've redeemed us for yourself. You've purchased our freedom at a price we weren't able to pay, Lord, leaving us in a place where all we can really rightfully declare is worthy is the Lamb who was slain, as we sang earlier. Father, as we embark on this journey into your word today and step into the throne room of heaven where John is seeing this vision. Lord, I pray that your spirit would do the miraculous work of instructing us and revealing to us what is laid out in this text. Lord, would you bless the reading and teaching of your word. In Jesus' worthy name we pray. And the church said, amen. Amen. So last week, um, I was actually at a conference in Minneapolis, freezing. I survived the polar vortex though. We made it back. It's about 100 degrees warmer here. Um, It was actually about negative 50 when we left. It was crazy. Um, But what's cool is when I was there, I got to spend some time with our senior pastor, uh, Miles DeBenedictus, down at Cross Connection. And um, it's always fun to be able to go through uh, my plans for a sermon with him, as he's got a lot more years of experience than I do. And he's always been one of the guys I look up to, as as with Gunner. Um, So I have to say, church, if you guys have never, um, or if you're visiting this morning and you haven't heard Pastor Gunner teach yet, um, he is a great teacher of the Word of God here. And you guys are very blessed to have him. So I actually, he sent me his message 
Um, I think it was on Tuesday or Wednesday, so I got to, to uh, listen to it and uh, was blessed by it in Revelation 4 because Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5 are two parts of the same vision, if you will. Um, and some of the points that he had made, um, I just wanted to refresh us, especially if you're new standing here this morning, is um, he made this point of application that we should be standing in awe of God. And I absolutely loved that. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe, right? And he is worthy because of that. And the second point was to reorder our lives in light of eternity, knowing what Christ has done for us, knowing where we're going. And, and, and something I would add on to this is that as Christians, as Bible-believing te- uh, Christians, and you guys are going through the Bible, and I absolutely love the fact that you guys are so dedicated to going through the Bible this year. All of you guys that are reading it, please continue. You're, you're going to be blessed by reading this. Anybody who reads this Bible as believers in Christ, we should have an optimistic vision of the future. Why? Because this is what the Apostle John is seeing. He's seeing an optimistic vision of the future right here in Revelation 4 and 5. As Christians, we need to have that optimistic vision of the future. And yet, I find it so easy for us to just turn on the news and to get depressed, to watch the brokenness around us. And I want to encourage you guys, we should have an optimistic vision of the future because we believe in the Christ. And Revelation 4 and 5 reminds us of what is going to happen. It reminds us why we should have this optimistic vision of the future. And third, thirdly, he actually he talked about decluttering your lives, not just with things, but your hearts. And as I was preparing this message in Revelation, um, talking about worship, and uh, I, I, I couldn't help but like think about my own past. So I have to share with you guys a little bit of where I come from. Um, as a pastor, as a Christian, I grew up going to church, Bible-believing parents. They love the Lord. They still do. Um, and we went to a, a very big church, a large church, um, that had a very strong eschatology. And eschatology is the study of the end times. And they had a very firm, strong teaching of eschatology, and they really focused in on it. Um, not to say that that was bad, but I kind of grew up thinking like, okay, like, I'm excited for the Lord to come back. But I also was so rooted into this, this view of eschatology that I, as I especially went into college, I loved to argue my view of eschatology is right. And I was so proud of myself at 18 years old, man. And um, I have to say, we had some, I had some great conversations with people and some great conversations, but there was, there was this point where the Spirit finally took a hold of my, my heart and convicted me, and he told me, if God's coming back soon, why am I spending so much time arguing that my view of eschatology is right instead of going out into the nations and sharing the good news that Christ is coming back when there's a bunch of people around me that are hellbound right now? Why am I spending so much time getting into the nitty-gritties of Revelation or the other texts in the Bible, Daniel um, even, and instead of, of seeing the bigger picture here that Christ is coming back. And there's a lot of people around you guys and around my life, friends and family and coworkers, that don't know him. And we're called to be a light in this dark world. And that broke my heart. That was a, that was a little spiritual wake-up call that shook me to the core. And then when I was... Growing up in church, uh, I have to talk about worship just a little bit because um, I got to say, I didn't always like worship. I grew up in church, and there's going to be a lot of you guys that perhaps would share the same story with you. You grew up in church, and I went through a season about in junior high. Growing up in church, I knew, I knew the Bible very well, actually, but I did not understand or like worship. In fact, there was even a time when I hated it. My heart was so hard to worship that I can remember standing, and we had a great worship team, just like you guys do, and 
So it wasn't the worship team. It's not, there wasn't like they were off pitch or something. No, I just, I had a hard time worshiping God because my heart was hard. And I grew up in church. And I remember actually there was a certain, I, I remember this moment, I don't know exactly when, sometime in junior high, I remember riding home in the car and talking to my dad and saying, why do we sing worship songs to God? Why do we have to do that, God? Our dad, I was, and I was asking him that. I was asking, why do we have to do that? I didn't understand worship. So I have a feeling that some of you guys might be in that same place that I was in. And God gave me, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and me seeking him through his word and through prayer and, and through discipleship and, every, and all that, those things, he, he broke my heart for worshiping him. He changed my heart by the power of his spirit. Because at one point, my heart was hard to worship. And I, and I look back, and I understand now why. That we have an enemy out there who absolutely hates us worshiping God. He hates us worshiping God. And this text is going to be talking a lot about worship, so I want to prepare us for what's coming. And just so you know, I understand if you're there. I understand if you're there. And I want you guys to experience breakthrough in worship. I think that there's so much incredible there's just such an incredible taste of God that we get when we worship him in spirit and in truth. So we're going to be looking a little bit at worship in Revelation 5 here um, and what's coming. So as we jump into this text, um, in order to jump into this text in Revelation 5, I actually want to start by laying a little bit of groundwork for us um, outside of Revelation 5 in one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. Um, why do I do this? Because I believe that I have, I kind of have a bigger, I have a big picture of like what God's doing. And I always like to have this big picture when I'm reading the Bible and whenever you're reading the Bible, you guys can flip over to Romans chapter eight. We'll be there for just a minute. When I read the Bible, I always look for Jesus, right? I believe that Jesus is central. He is the pivoting point of all of scripture. Everything revolves around him in scripture and you can read and you can find Jesus everywhere in scripture. And his plan of redemption, God's plan of redemption uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and then how Jesus reveals himself as a man, and then is sacrificed on the cross for our sins. But I say that creation has a problem. This is, we have to lead into Revelation 5, knowing where we're coming from, where we are today. Why? Because we all live in a broken world, right? And we understand that. I don't have to convince you guys of that. So creation, I would say, has a problem. And we see this in Revelation, or I mean Romans. Sorry, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to be starting in verse 19 uh, to 22, reading here, and you guys can follow along with me if you're there. It says, For all creation is eagerly waiting for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subject to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from what? Death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Yeah, it has been groaning, hasn't it? I watch the news just like you guys do. I, I read it on my phone. I don't necessarily watch it. I don't have much TV. Um, but it's depressing. The world is broken. And we eagerly wait for freedom from death and decay, amen? We want that. We all have this desire deep within our hearts, each one of us, for world peace, right? But then we all also have this desire. That would be the macro level. We have this desire for world peace, peace um, surrounding the whole nation, all, all nations, the whole world. And then we also have this uh, macro desire, or micro desire, really, for our own family. 
right? We all grew up in families. That means that there was brokenness there. Why? Because we're all sinners living together. And you can experience that when you're with your family, that there's going to be sin, there's going to be brokenness. And then at some point in your life, you had to figure out probably the hard way that you cannot pick up the broken pieces of your life caused by sin and put them back together. And the world's been trying to do that through all sorts of different ways, meditation, uh, drugs, alcohol, you name it, trying to put, pull back the broken pieces and to what? Find satisfaction in something. There's pain, there's brokenness, there's sickness, and we long for freedom from that. We have a problem. We're at this place today, ultimately, because of what happened, I would say, all the way down at, at the, back at the beginning. Was the original sin Adam? No. It was Satan. It was Lucifer, an angel in heaven. He had heard worship in heaven, no doubt. He had seen God, and yet he desired to be worshipped. He desired to be worshipped. And it's the devil that feeds our own self-love and desire for self-worship. That's what we see. I see all around us, especially in America, is that we have this desire that the devil is feeding so fully for our own self-love, and he's just feeding us this self-love, like love yourself, worship yourself, find yourself happiness. In the beginning, we were, there was brokenness and there was, a, there was a curse. But in the beginning, God said, let us make human beings. Let us make man in our own image. And in the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. That they would reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock and wild animals over the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. God gave mankind dominion over the earth. And he saw that it was good, right? He saw that it was good. So what happened? What happened? He creates us. He gives us dominion. He sees that it's good. He loves it. There was complete communion and relationship with God. There was worship of God. There was, it was perfect. It was the Garden of Eden. It was a picture of heaven, if you will. That didn't last very long. Genesis chapter 3, only two chapters later, what happens? We, we, we break the one rule that God gave. Don't, don't eat of the tree of life. And they did. Adam, and, and, and the dominion that Adam knew and the control that Adam knew over creation uh, came crashing down, I would say. And in John chapter 14, Jesus says that there is a ruler of this present age. That means that the shift went from Adam, from us, having dominion over the world, having control over living beings and creatures and everything else, broke. There was a brokenness. There was a separation now between man and God and the devil now came and kind of filled this void of ruler of his present age. No, did he have the title deed to the earth? No. He's on a leash, yes. But he's wreaking havoc over the world. Why? Because he's considered this being that's just scouring around, that's prowling around like a roaring lion. It's not this pretty picture, right? It's not a pretty picture, and he's doing that right now. But thank God that Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil, Amen. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. But this is why we shouldn't be shocked when we experience and see brokenness, sickness, death, pain, and all these things in our lives and in this world. We shouldn't be shocked, but we should have an optimistic vision of the future, an optimistic hope of the future. That's what I find in Revelation chapter 5. When we have this desire, and I would say we all corporately would have this desire for peace in our lives, for freedom from sin, from death, from all this stuff, when we have that, we all have that desire, right? And I found this, there's this quote from uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, that I always love. 
And it says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. He put it very plainly. Do you guys believe that? You see, we have this desire for this freedom from sickness, from aging, from death, from suffering, from brokenness in our lives, in our families' lives. And, and Christ comes and he says, I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to restore that back to you. You're made for another world. We're citizens of heaven if we believe in Christ. Romans 8 continues and it says, And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Amen? We, too, wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us full rights as his adopted children. That's good. That's good stuff right there, including the new bodies he's promised us. That's even better stuff, right? Amen? New bodies in heaven. We were given this hope when we were saved. If you're here this morning and you haven't accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I really challenge you to consider it this morning. To consider what he's offering you. To consider what he's offering you freedom from the bondage of sin and slavery. Freedom from the weight and just the the weight that sits on your shoulders when you are full of sin. He takes that and he says, throw that weight, throw that burden on on, on me. I want to carry that. And he allows us to have an optimistic view of the future, to be joyful now in this present time, even though there's suffering, even though there's pain. That's why I absolutely love what Revelations 5 talks about. So let's jump into the throne room of heaven again. Are you guys ready? It's going to be good. It says, Then I saw a scroll. In Revelation 5 again, verse 1. And I saw a scroll on the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne, There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to read it. So in this vision, John sees the scroll in the right hand of God. So in Revelation chapter 4, you have this kind of overview, and Gunnar talked about it pretty well, he described it pretty well, of the throne room of heaven and the throne of God is the centerpiece of the throne room of heaven. And then you have all these beings and creatures around them and it's just this glorious picture of heaven. And the Apostle John is graced by God to see this and then to write it down. But in Revelation 5, his focus turns more to the small detail of the scroll in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And I point this out, and I I just think, because when I read these kind of things, and I say, if John's noticing the scroll in the right hand of God the Father sitting on the throne, then all the rest of heaven must also be looking at this scroll with anticipation, right? That it wasn't just him that was focused on the scroll. It was all of heaven was eagerly anticipating when the scroll would be opened. So what is this scroll? Well, it's described as having seven seals which could be strings wrapped around it um, and sealed with wax, which is most likely what that was. And seven seals does not mean that it was seven different texts necessarily. It means that it was one scroll, and scrolls would have been read horizontally, pulled apart, and then you kind of roll it in and roll it out as you go. And it was sealed with seven different seals, seven different bindings, if you will. 
And I think that makes it unique. And a lot of scholars, a lot of biblical scholars would say that makes it very unique. Um, there's a couple different reasons, and I don't want to get too far into it, but the seven seals likely represented profound secrecy. But not only profound secrecy, but also is a way to keep any unauthorized person or being from opening it. The seven seals. A lot of people believe, um, scholars that have studied the Bible probably a lot more than, and more depth than I have, would say that it could be the last will and testament of God. It could be the title deed to the earth. God's final statement or settlement of affairs for the universe. And that's kind of the, uh, the text that I'm going to kind of, I, I kind of would more, I, I'm more prone to follow that line of thinking, that it's God's final settlement, settlement of affairs for the universe. God has a plan for the universe. Amen? From the beginning to the end, he has history in his hands. He's outside of time, but he has it all in his hands. He has a plan. And you know what's so great about him having a plan and us believing he has a plan is that each one of us wants to be part of something bigger than ourselves, right? We all have that desire to be part of something bigger than ourselves, something amazing. And then God's saying, well, I have a plan. I want you to be part of this plan. I'm going to give you responsibility in this plan. It's an amazing just thing to think about. Wow. God's final settlement of affairs for the universe. So if that's what it is, then it's pretty important, right? It's pretty important. And here's what I find clear about that, is that in the end, the purpose of God will be worked out. In the end, the purpose of God will be worked out. And not to focus so much on this scroll. We don't know what's written in it. We really don't. But we know that there's a scroll. It's important. It's in the right hand of God. And we know that nobody was worthy to open it or even to look into it. That's what's important about this scroll. You'll see the word worthy. It shows up, I think, at least four times in this text in Revelation chapter 5. Focus in on that word. I loved how we were singing all the songs this morning, praising God for how worthy he is. It couldn't have been more fitting. Nobody in all of creation was found worthy to open the scroll. And there's an anticipation. There's almost like this suspense built up in heaven, watching this scroll, waiting for the scroll to be opened. Every living being is waiting. And then this strong angel, this powerful angel, is crying out in a loud voice. And if it's a mighty angel, I imagine this angel would make us fall on our faces if it revealed himself to us. And all of heaven, all of creation could hear him. This mighty angel crying out in a loud voice, who is worthy to open this scroll and to break its seven seals? It's a pretty big deal what's going on in heaven right now and then nobody all of a sudden it's like silence falls it's kind of the way i picture it if it was in a movie it'd be like everybody's focused on the scroll there's this challenge that's given by this mighty angel and if the mighty angel wasn't powerful enough to do it and nobody else was found worthy enough to do it and all of a sudden there's just silence and john is watching this whole thing unfold before him and he starts weeping why because he understands that this scroll is significant But there's also something else. In verse 5, it says, One of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne, he won the victory. He's worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. This is what John, I think, was wanting to hear all along. Why? Because the apostle John walked with Jesus. He watched Jesus sacrifice himself up on the cross, raise again on the third day, and then he busied himself by doing the work that God sent him out to do, the Great Commission. He believed in God, Jesus, the Messiah, his Savior, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. And when this cry from this mighty angel went out, I imagine that John probably was looking for Jesus. 
He's saying, if, if Jesus wasn't worthy to open the scroll, then who is? If Jesus wasn't worthy to open the scroll, then did I waste 60 years of my life following him? And I imagine this is probably what was going on in John's head, and that just makes him start weeping because he's like, no, that can't be right. And it wasn't. One of the 24 elders stops him. Stop weeping, the line of the tribe of Judah. The heir of David's throne has won the victory. The line of the tribe of Judah is a messianic title that comes from Genesis. It comes from Isaiah and Hosea. It comes from all over. The root of David is another messianic picture. Um, the promise of the Messiah would be that he was, he was coming from the root of David. Isaiah, I think it's chapter 11, says that. And how fitting is it that he would call, be called the lion of the tribe of Judah? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion would be fitting because it, it represents his excellent strength. We never look upon a lion and think of weakness, do we? I've never seen a lion and thought, oh, that thing looks weak. <laughs> Actually, my neighbor said they just saw a, a mountain lion uh, in our neighborhood just a couple days ago. I was thinking, I'd really love to see one. I haven't seen one in our neighborhood and with my own eyes yet. I've seen pictures, but uh, it'd be really cool to see one out in the wild. But we don't look upon a lion and think of weakness. No, the lion of the tribe of Judah is powerful. It's just showing his strength. The lion of the tribe of Judah, not only that, but he prevailed. What did he prevail over? What did he prevail over? What did he win the victory over? Well, I would say he's worthy because he prevailed over sin. He was completely sinless. He lived his whole entire life, born a child, an infant, a baby, not in a king's court, but in a manger. He lived a humble life. His dad was just a carpenter. And he rose up under these parents and at around the age of 30 began his earthly ministry proclaiming the, the kingdom of God. Proclaiming uh, that we need to leave our sins behind. We need to follow him. He's worthy because he lived his whole entire life without sin. You know, what's interesting about that. I was thinking, um, and Gunnar even reminded me of this text in John chapter 8. There was Jesus teaching in the synagogue and all of these religious leaders and stuff are trying to cause Jesus to stumble. They're trying to trip him up. So what do they do? They go out and somehow they manage to find a woman caught in adultery. And they, in, that fact, in that day, they'd have to find at least two or three witnesses would have to like together find this woman caught in adultery. The man wasn't, didn't show up. They didn't, must have not cared about the man. I, I don't understand why. Men are just as responsible as women in that. But they bring this, this woman caught in adultery before Jesus and likely she didn't have very much clothes on. And they asked him, what does the law say? Don't we need to stone her? She's caught in adultery. There's witnesses, Jesus. What do you say we do? They're trying to trip him up. And Jesus, what does he do? He stoops down on the ground. And he starts drawing on the ground in front of this woman. He starts writing in the sand, it says. And I can imagine what he was saying. You are loved. I care about you. You can find forgiveness in me. And then Jesus stands up and he addresses the crowds and he says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And then silence until you hear the drop of the first rock come out of the men's hands. All around him, rocks falling. They realize that they had sin in their lives. Jesus was the only one that was sinless in their whole midst. He was the only one that really could have thrown the stone, right? Jesus didn't. That reminds me of the heart of our Savior. That's the heart of the God here. That's the heart of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb who was slain, that is worthy to take this seal, this scroll, and open it. 
He's worthy to read and to usher in the final days of history. And it's good for us to remember that's who he is. That he's not the one that's throwing stones at us because of our sin. He's the one that came to save us out of it. He's worthy also because he prevailed over death. He gave himself freely in our place, up on a cross. He said, you know, he said, you could not kill me if you tried. I have to freely give myself up as a ransom for many. We could not have done it. Jesus even talked about, if I I wanted to, he said, I could just call legions and myriads and myriads of angels and they would come and fight for me. But he didn't. Why? Because he cared about you. He prevailed over death. He died freely. He died. He gave his life up as a ransom for ours, taking the weight of sin upon his shoulders, and he died. But he did not stay in the grave. On the third day, he rose again. That is good news. He prevailed over death. And just as he prevailed over death, so will we. He's worthy also because he lived in complete obedience, giving his life freely. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57 says this, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. Amen. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That's the good news. That is why you can have an optimistic vision of the future. That's why you should. And then the next scene here, John You know, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David is pronounced. He's coming. This elder tells him, look, here comes the line of the tribe of Judah. And John looks and there's a lion. No. A lamb. A lamb appears as though it had been slain, standing between the throne and the four living creatures among the 24 elders in this throne room of heaven. And this lamb is standing as though it had been slain. It's a fitting picture of Jesus, the savior of the world, the Messiah, a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion as John Piper would say. John doesn't just use the language to describe a general picture of any lamb. And this is what's interesting as I was studying this. The language for the, the word he used for describing the lamb in this text was not just a general lamb that you might have on your property. It was an infant lamb. It was a delicate baby lamb. I don't know if any of you guys are on Instagram and follow little animal pages or anything, but it's so much fun to watch. Little animals are little puppies and little, like, they're just cute. They're fun. We love watching them. There's something that, like joy that just springs up within us when we see them. And yet, here's this delicate picture of a baby lamb standing as though it had been slain, meaning it still had the marks of the slaying on him. This could only point to one person, Jesus, who bore the weight of our sin and shame upon the cross. Remember, when Jesus revealed himself to the disciples, he still had the holes in his hands and in his feet. He bore the mark the marks of his sacrificial love. This lamb was standing as though it had been slain. This is the the most fitting picture I can possibly think of for the Messiah, for the Savior of the world, that he is humble, gentle, and sacrificially loving. We need to remember that because he, this humble, gentle, and sacrificially loving Savior, is the one who is worthy to usher in the end times, the times of judgment. If he is humble, gentle, and sacrificially loving, is he not worthy to judge us? That's who I want to judge me. Somebody who's humble, gentle, and sacrificially loving, the lamb. It's a fitting picture. 
But don't let this picture of the lamb, Jesus, fool you into believing he's weak. The seven eyes and the seven horns that are spoke about here commonly um, are thought to be or reference his, the fact that he's all-knowing. Seven eyes, he's all-knowing. He sees everything. It's omniscience. And then the seven horns, the horns always in the Bible represent power. He's all-powerful. And the fact that there's seven of each of them is this number of perfection or completeness. He's perfectly powerful. He's perfectly or completely knowing. He knows all. He sees all. And he's completely powerful. And perfectly powerful. And he is also perfectly worthy of our praise. This is the greatest season, I would say the greatest scene in heaven. This is the greatest scene in probably almost all of the scripture here. Jesus is worthy. Why? Because though, in Philippians chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself, being completely obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, what did God do? God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of our admiration. He's worthy of our praise. Where Adam failed, Christ prevailed. Where Adam failed into sin, he fell into sin. Jesus Christ, known as also the second Adam, if you will, he prevailed. Adam ushered in a time of brokenness and separation from God. Christ ushers in a time of completeness and wholeness with God. That we can be with him. The lamb who was slain, he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the Father, seated on the throne, and all of heaven falls on their faces in worship. The English poet uh, Christina Rossetti, she accurately describes this, uh, the rest of this chapter um, going forward as, the, the fact that heaven is revealed to earth as the homeland of music. Heaven is revealed to earth as the homeland of music. And I thought that was quite fitting, actually. It's, it's very true. And then there's a lot of people, like, I grew up in church thinking, like, okay, is heaven really that great? It sounds like all we're going to be doing is singing. And I am not a great singer. This, this uh, actually, I just started this, this, uh, this month uh, taking a class, uh, one of the classes in seminary is um, on Christian worship. And my wife, she helps lead worship at our church. My uh, sister-in-law also is a worship leader. Uh, I'm surrounded by people that absolutely love singing and love worship, and I love that. But I am not one of those people that is great at singing. That's why you won't see me up here singing. And, and yet, that was, that was part of the, I would say, the tension in my own soul. is like, is heaven going to be that great if all I'm doing is worshiping God all the time? If I have to suddenly, like, maybe in heaven I'll get some kind of supernatural gift to actually be able to play a harp. But I don't believe that everyone in heaven is just holding a harp, worshiping the whole entire time like that. These 24 elders are the only creatures, um, along with the four beasts, that are holding harps, worshiping God. At least in this text. That's from what I can gather as reading it. We don't know for sure. But what I do know in heaven is that in heaven we will finally be able to worship God and all of his worthiness with, without anything hindering us. What do I mean by that? We'll be able to worship God with unadulterated admiration. Right now, we have sin in our lives, right? You have sin in your life. You have stuff that you're working through, and that 
sin causes tension with worship. It's that you think I'm not worthy to worship God. I what what am I? I, I just I just sinned the other day. I just did this or that. I'm guilty of of calling somebody a name or this, whatever you did. And all of a sudden it's that conviction in our lives, the weight of sin, that causes separation, that causes a tension between us and worship and us in complete worship. So in heaven, what's so great is in heaven there's no sin, there's no sickness, there's no pain, there's no brokenness. In heaven we're actually going to be able to, it's going to be a wonderful time where we get to actually worship God in wholeness with our whole being. It's going to be an unrestricted time of worship where we get to worship God in infinitely creative ways. You're all very creative people. I believe that there's a lot of ways that we can worship God over just playing a musical instrument or singing on a stage. There's a lot of ways you can worship God in your life. God's given you all talents, abilities. He's given you time. And how are we worshiping God with that? Heaven's going to be a time of unrestricted worship, and I cannot wait to be there. The four living creatures and, and the elders, they fell down before the Lamb with a harp and golden bowls, incense, which were the prayers of God's people, us. And I want to make a point about prayer. The prayers of God's people, your prayers are stored up, not in some closet, dirty closet in heaven. The prayer, your prayers are stored up in golden bowls of incense, where in heaven? Right before the throne of God. How amazing is that? Think about it. Your prayers have power. Something I want you to walk away with today is where prayer is focused, power falls. Think about that. Where prayer is focused, power falls. Our prayers are heard by God. They're not some stench in the throne room. What you, when you're crying out to God, he loves that. He remembers everything you said. He cares so deeply about you. Why? Because Jesus is also there interceding for you. He's also there hearing your prayers right there in the throne room of God. And this incense, this Golden bowls of incense, our prayers are filling the throne room. That means there's a lot of prayers, and that means you guys should be praying a lot. That means we need to be devoted people to prayer. Prayers of God's people are so precious to him. I can't say how prayer has affected my life personally. I mean, I talked about how much I struggled to worship earlier. I have to say that the part of that breakthrough really did happen in prayer. When I finally got on my knees before God and I just said, okay, God, I need your help. I need your spirit to do something in my heart and my life to actually understand this. And that's when he revealed himself to me. It's through prayer. Then you also realize that when we pray for other people, that means that that prayer is up in heaven in the throne room of God being heard up there. Angels are disappointed. You understand what's happening? The power in your prayers for other people, especially those that are lost those living in, lo- in darkness around us? Oh, there's so much power in prayer. We need to be praying for those around us. We worship him and we pray because he is worthy. But it wasn't just these, them holding these harps and these golden bowls full of our prayers, if you will. They sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take up the scroll and break its seals and open it. You were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And this right here is it was one of the ways that we know that this is in the future. We know, and we have an opti- I have an optimistic view of the future that God reaches people from all over the world. 
I've traveled a lot. I've seen a lot of different nations and peoples and tribes and languages, and I loved them, and I loved seeing how God was presented there and the power of God in their lives. And this is the Great Commission. Remember, when Jesus ascended into heaven, what was the last thing he told his disciples to do? Go into where? All of the world. Go into all the world, declaring the good news. Go to all nations, all peoples, all tribes. Matthew 28 says that. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you even to the end of the age. That's good news. And that's such great news that the the great commission that he sent his people out to do 2,000 years ago is going to be one day completely fulfilled and in heaven you guys are going to be worshiping around the throne room of God with thousands and thousands and millions and millions of people from all around the world singing in their own heart language to God, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That's good news. That God cares about the nations. And when he's caring about the nations, he's not just saying a nation as in America. There's a lot of different people groups in America, right? Just like every other nation in the world. He's talking about specific people. Any group that identifies with their own special language. He's saying those people, if you've never been on a website called The Joshua Project, I strongly encourage you to check it out. The Joshua Project. They talk about all all around the world. And it's kind of this, we use it um, in our bulletins at least as a unreached people group to pray for each week. The Joshua Project. And they highlight a different people group all the way around the world. And they, they share, how is this group getting reached? What percentage of them have been reached? And the statistics are incredibly, incredibly encouraging, but then also incredibly inspiring. They inspire me to want to go out and do that work. To want to empower other pastors and leaders and people there to continue the gospel message there. We need to have a heart for the nations. Why? Because the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. And God has a plan for the universe. We all want to be part of his plan. God's saying, I want you to be part of my plan. I want to use you in my plan. I want you to become part of my story. My story in reaching the nations and redeeming a people for myself from every tribe, nation, and language, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, freeing them from the bondage and slavery of sin, that's quite a calling. And John looks and he says, he looked again and I heard the voices of thousands of millions of angels around the throne and the living beings and elders and they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea And they sang, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So there's two points of application I want to bring from this scene of worship in heaven. One, we should worship God because he's worthy of our worship. We worship God because of what he's done in the past, what what he's doing right now. So what he's done, what he's doing right now, and then also what he's going to do, the fulfillment of the Great Commission, right here in Revelation chapter 5. There's three points why we should worship God, right there. We worship God because he is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our complete admiration. And I can't wait until we together get to be in heaven and worship God 
without anything hindering us. But when we worship God corporately here, I, I do really believe that we're getting a taste of heaven. And I hope you guys understand that. We're getting a little taste of heaven every time we worship together. I know it's not a perfect taste of heaven, but I look forward to it. So the first application here is I want you guys to check your current state of worship. Do we believe in this God that we worship? We have to, we have to do this little heart check that I had to do years ago where God broke my hard heart and he softened it to understanding what worship was and why I do it. That I could give myself freely to him, sacrificially to him, that I could bow my heart and bend my knees before the living God because he is worthy of it. The second point of application for this text, I would say, is that we, as a church, as believers in this good news, need to be completely committed to our calling to accomplish the Great Commission today that you need to be completely committed to accomplishing that great commission today. Yes, I, I understand that God is sovereign, that we know what's going to happen in Revelation chapter 5. We've just read it. we just studied it. That Jesus is worthy to open, open the seal and usher in this time of judgment and, and the culmination of all of history that God had a plan for. God also gave us a responsibility as believers. And that responsibility is to go and to reach the nations. And maybe for you, that's not the calling that you receive. Maybe you're just saying, okay, well, like, there's no way that I could possibly leave the country and go into the nations. Well, that's, a, that's, that's okay because God's given us a lot of people right here in our own hometown. Maybe you're just called to go next door. Maybe you're called to pray for the person next door. So what's the practical response to that? Well, something that we've done at Cross Connection Church that I've absolutely loved, we devote ourselves to prayer just like, just like you guys do. Um, but something I want to in, invite you guys into this morning is to write down the names of three people, just three, three people that you can be praying for this week that you can invite to church. Three people that you can be praying for that the Holy Spirit would have some breakthrough power in their lives, soften their hard heart, and that they would come to a saving knowledge of Christ as their Savior. So I do encourage you guys, before you leave here today, write down three, pull out your phones and write them down in your notes section, wherever it needs to be. Write down names of three people and commit to praying for them. Why? Because where prayer is focused, power falls. And I want to see the Great Commission fulfilled in North County just as much as any of you guys do. I want to see revival happen here. I want to see God praised in spirit and truth from everybody here. Why? Because it breaks my heart to know that people are broken, that people are, are broken without any hope. And it should break your heart too. Where prayer is focused, power falls. And you might be thinking, Garrett, I don't know if this is possible for us. <laughs> so I end and I'm going to close with Romans 8, 31 to 39. So when Paul is saying this, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up as a ransom for many. How will he not also graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God right now? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And here it comes. Shall tribulations, shall distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. 
We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers or heights or depths, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for all that you've done, for all that you're going to do, and for all that you're doing in our lives right now. Lord, I sense that your spirit is doing a mighty work within our hearts right now. Lord, I pray that you would give us give us the burden of the nations, Lord. Give us the burden of our neighbors, Lord. Would you come into our lives, Lord, and transform our hard hearts so we can f- fulfill this great commission, Lord, completely obedient to you. Lord, the words of a song do kind of ring in my ears as um, we close with this. Bear your cross as we wait for a crown. Tell the world of the treasure we found. Jesus is coming. To bring our sorrow and trade it for joy and from the ashes a new life is born. That Jesus is coming. Lord, thank you for the promise that your son is coming. It's good news that we have. Father, we thank you that you are worthy of our admiration. Thank you that you're worthy to open the scroll. And we thank you for giving us a plan in your, in your history, Lord, in, in your story. So use us for your glory, I ask. And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the church said, Amen.